Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, Wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Welcome back. It feels like it's been forever since we've talked, mostly because it's been a week since the Buffalo Bills have actually played a meaningful football game. But that doesn't mean there aren't things to talk about. So here's how today's episode is going to go. We have some narratives I want to talk about. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to take one question from the mailbag as it relates to QB Stew. And then we are going to unveil QB Stew post week 12 rankings. I have a small backlog of emails that I would like to get to. So hopefully we can get to those next week. But for today, narratives and stew are the topics of the day. First thing, Tredavious White, injured. You all know we haven't had an opportunity to talk about it, but this is not news to you. But what I am going to say about Tredavious White's injury is that now is not the time to spike the ball on cornerback. Now, you might find that hard to believe coming from me, coming from the biggest at a cornerback in the draft proponent, the biggest inject bore athleticism into the cornerback room proponent. But now is not the time to spike the ball on cornerback. Why? Because there isn't a cornerback that you were going to pick that would be able to step in for Trey White you would have been looking at Trey White and potentially a rookie, but Levi Wallace has been playing fairly well this year. What are the odds that a rookie was going to come in and play better than Levi Wallace has so far this year? Maybe, possible, but Levi Wallace has been playing really well. So really, you'd be upgrading Dane Jackson from that standpoint. And in order to spike the ball on potentially upgrading from Dane Jackson, wouldn't we need to see him play? In 2021 to do that? Listen, I am all about spiking the ball. Take your W's graciously. Take your L's graciously. I'm all about the I told you so's as long as they're delivered in a nice way where we can all learn. But we don't know yet. We know it's not going to be Trey White, but you weren't going to upgrade from Trey White anyway. You may have been able to upgrade from Levi Wallace, but not necessarily the way he's playing this year. How many rookie quarterbacks are out there playing better than Levi Wallace who were available? Asante Samuel Jr. is doing pretty well, but he's hurt. There's a couple quarterbacks I like, but they weren't available when the Bills picked. Newsom, I really liked. You guys know I was a Greg Newsom guy. Patrick Sertan Jr. has been fantastic. But neither one of those things the Bills could have done. We don't know for sure. They could have picked him. Unless you wanted them to trade multiple assets into the top 10 to take Patrick Sertan Jr. So you probably weren't going to upgrade Trey White. You may have upgraded Levi Wallace, but unlikely. And you may have been able 
to upgrade Dane Jackson. But we don't know that yet. I'm not saying there will never be a time to spike the ball. I'm saying I don't think we have enough evidence yet to spike the ball on should have drafted a cornerback high. If Dane Jackson comes and absolutely collapses and the level of play is so bad that any reasonable corner you could have picked in the second round or third round could have outplayed him, then okay, sure. It'll be a little hindsight for sure, but we will have the appropriate amount of data. I'll tell you something we do have the appropriate amount of data to talk about. Zach Moss. You will remember on this podcast a couple months ago, I talked about that Zach Moss was consistently put into bad rushing situations and somehow ended up with pretty decent advanced metrics. And that I wanted to see Zach Moss as the first man through the rotation because I wanted to see him against good boxes, against good run looks to see what he could deliver. Well, we had a chance to do that a little bit over the last couple weeks. And I'm here to take my L on Zach Moss. Zach Moss had the opportunities that I wanted him to get over the last couple weeks. And he consistently ran into contact. He consistently didn't show the appropriate vision necessary and lacked the explosion that would allow him to set himself apart from Devin Singletary. He got the opportunities that I wanted him to get and didn't do enough with them. So now this is me taking an L on Zach Moss. In fact, it's a fairly large L for me because I was a big Zach Moss proponent before he got drafted. I thought he was one of the last people in that tier of reasonable running backs that I would have felt comfortable with. I wrote an article for buffalorumblings.com where I advocated for the drafting of Zach Moss before he came out. So for me, it's not just an L on the podcast from a while back. It's an L on the concept of what I thought Zach Moss could become previously because he hasn't become that player. And what I've learned from the Zach Moss scenario is that speed at the running back position and sustaining blocks on your offensive line are inversely proportional the way that arm strength and anticipation are for quarterbacks. You've heard me say this before. Arm strength and anticipation are inversely proportional when it comes to necessity on quarterbacks. The more of one you have, the less of the other you need. The stronger your arm, the less anticipatory you have to be. The weaker your arm, the more anticipatory you have to be. It's like taking two numbers and having them add to 10. The smaller one of the numbers is, by definition, the larger the other number has to be in order to get to 10. Well, that's the way it is with arm strength and anticipation for quarterbacks. And I think that's the way it is with explosion specifically and sustaining blocks on offense. The more explosive your running back is through the hole, the less sustained the blocks need to be on the run side to make it work. The more sustained the blocks are on the run side, the less explosive the running back has to be. You see this a little bit with really good offensive lines and really good systems. You saw a player like Dearness Johnson, who ran a 40-yard dash in 4.81 seconds. He had a 10-yard split of 1.64, 
Ladies and gentlemen, that is not explosive. But he's running behind the Cleveland Browns offensive line, which is one of the best in football and also one of the most highly paid. But he was able to have success and is a restricted free agent at the end of this season. And if the Browns don't tender him at a second round level, which they probably won't, they already have Nick Chubb. They already have Kareem Hunt. If they don't tender Dearness Johnson, somebody's going to look at that and go, wow, let me get some Dearness Johnson. But he was running behind an offensive line that could sustain its blocks, which means he didn't have to be overly explosive to make that work. Well, if you're running behind the Buffalo Bills offensive line, maybe you don't have to be crazy explosive, but you got to be more explosive than Zach Moss. Now, Devin Singletary and Matt Breida did not light the world on fire. They averaged 2.9 yards a carry, ladies and gentlemen. That is bad. But they were able to pick up better pluses. Instead of the pluses being a two-yard game, the pluses are a five-yard gain. You were able to get bigger positives. Now, you also ended up with some bigger negatives when you try crack toss plays with Matt Breida and he gets stuffed in the backfield. So you got negative plays, but you also got higher highs, which is good. That's part of it. So I think one of the things that we can learn from this is that there are two traits, two qualities when it comes to the run game that are inversely correlative and proportional as far as necessity goes. And I think it's something to think about as we are thinking about potential additions to the Buffalo Bills running back room in 2022. One of the things I want to talk about a little bit is something I mentioned about Ed Oliver a couple weeks back. I said, somebody is going to say, he only had four sacks. That's going to happen. Or he only had three sacks. That's going to happen. Somebody will scout the box score when it comes to impact of Ed Oliver. And I want to talk a little bit because it's already started to happen. I made a comment on social media about Ed Oliver breaking out. And I had multiple people who were like, uh, he has half a sack. And I knew it. I knew this was going to happen this way. But on an individual level, raw sack and pressure numbers aren't as descriptive as ratios because of heavy rotation on the defensive line. That's the first point I want to make. Raw pressures doesn't really do as much as pressures per pass rush snap. Because it's opportunity. If one person has 200 snaps against a passer when they're passing the ball, and another person has 100 snaps against a passer when they're passing the ball, who has more opportunity? If the other person ends up with seven sacks, and your person ends up with five sacks, your person was better from an efficiency standpoint, but we don't look at that. All we look about is raw numbers. I don't love raw numbers. You guys know this about me. I like ratios but I don't love raw numbers because the sample and opportunity are very rarely equal. Sometimes they are games. A lot of times everyone plays the same amount of games. That's nice, but it's not always the same amount of attempts, not the same amount of opportunities. And so number one, I want to mention is that when you are evaluating Ed Oliver, Jerry Hughes, Gregory Rousseau, AJ Epinesa, whoever it is you want to evaluate based on production from a metric standpoint, please don't forget opportunity, especially important when it comes 
to the Buffalo Bills because of how significantly they rotate. Now, you can have a different discussion entirely as to the wisdom of the rotation, but we certainly can't deny that it exists and it needs to be accounted for when you're measuring production from the defensive line. The second thing I want to talk about when it comes to evaluating an Oliver and other young defensive linemen, because that's a big part of what we're doing right now. The Bills have a lot invested in that defensive line. Ed Oliver, A.J. Epinesa, Gregory Rousseau, Boogie Basham. We're looking at these people. We're wanting to see improvement. We just have to make sure we measure it correctly. So the second thing is that pressures that don't convert to sacks is just as much about the coverage scheme as it is about the pass rusher. I'm going to say that again. Pressures not converting to sacks is just as much about the coverage scheme as it is about the defensive lineman. If it's third and eight and the Bills run cover three, the corners are probably aligned 10 to 12 yards off the line of scrimmage. If you get pressure on that play, it's probably going to create a throw that is short of the sticks. That's a good thing. The Bills have allowed the lowest number of passing yards, first downs, touchdowns, net yards per pass, and have the second most interceptions because they're number one in the NFL in pressure rate, but they're not number one in sacks. You know why? Because the point of a pressure is a negative play. A sack is just one of those plays. The point of pressuring the quarterback is to get a negative play. One of the potential outcomes that would constitute a negative play is a sack. Do you know what else constitutes a negative play? A four-yard pass on third and eight where you run up and make the tackle. That counts as a negative play, and it was created by a pressure. If the Bills run cover zero on third and eight instead of cover three, and it's man across the board, and they bring pressure, that pressure could result in a sack. Or he could throw it deep into single coverage and get a 60-yard touchdown. That's a possible outcome too. So the Bills just want a negative play. That's what they want from pressure because that's what every defense wants from pressure. They want a negative play. Sacks are not the only type of negative play. And because they're not the only type of negative play, what you are playing on the back end influences what your pass rushers are likely to achieve on the front end because you're literally funneling the quarterback toward an outcome. You are funneling them toward that check down on third and eight. That's a good play for the defense. If they take a check down on third and eight for two yards and you rally and tackle, that's a win. That's absolutely a win. If you bring everybody in the hope that the only win you could possibly get here is a sack and then you get burned for a 60-yard touchdown, okay, congratulations. You might end up with a defense that has more sacks, but are you going to end up with a better defense? Are you going to play better? No. So we need to understand that what you are playing on the back end when it comes to defensive coverage has a very significant impact on the type of negative play that your pressure is likely to generate because that's really the only point. Pressure is designed to generate negative plays. A sack isn't the only optimal outcome. Your defensive lineman might get more sacks if the pressures that you get correspond with tight man covers on the back end. You might get more sacks. You also might get more blown plays for touchdowns. 
How often do you see those against the Buffalo Bills? The average depth of target against the Buffalo Bills is consistently one of the lowest, if not the lowest, in the NFL year over year. Do you think that's not by design? Do you think they lucked into that? No. They want to give you an out. You get pressure, that's completely fine. You get pressure, you don't have to bomb it up for a 60-yard pass. Go ahead and take that check down. We want you to. We want you to take the check down on third and eight to the running back for two yards. We're good with that. Either way, we're getting off the field. If we sack you, we're getting off the field too. But you don't have the downside of potentially getting burned for a 60-yard touchdown. I understand why they do it. I'm not saying sacks are bad. I'm saying that the point of pressure is to get a negative play and getting off the field on third down is a negative play, period. So we need to evaluate these things when we're talking about pressures and sacks, which has been a big topic of conversation and will likely continue to be a big topic of conversation moving forward. Last thing, as it relates to Ed Oliver and lots of other players that we're going to talk about. Brandon Bean's draft record looks a lot different with Dawson Knox breaking out. Brandon Bean's draft record looks a lot different with Ed Oliver breaking out. And yes, that's what's happening. He is breaking out right now. Like a teenager going through puberty, Ed Oliver is breaking out. Brandon Bean's draft record looks a lot different with Tremaine Edmonds having his best year ever. Because leading into this year, it was... Okay, Josh Allen hit, and we got a couple doubles. But if you get Dawson Knox as a really good player, you want to sign to a second contract. Tremaine Emmons as a really good player, you want to sign to a second contract. Ed Oliver as a really good player, you want to sign to a second contract. All of a sudden, Brandon Bean's draft record looks a lot better. It doesn't necessarily look great in the second round. Cody Ford, A.J. Epinesa, Boogie Basham. That's something we'll probably talk about this offseason if you don't see significant turns from A.J. Epinesa and or Boogie Basham. But nailing those first round picks, nailing a top 10 pick, that's a good thing. And I think it looks a lot different with Knox, Edmonds, Oliver breaking out than it did before. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk QB stew. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Before we get into QB stew, I got an email from Landon who wanted to ask me a couple questions on QB stew. And I'll just go through them one by one because I think it's good to be able to have this conversation. Number one, he said, any thought into using accuracy rating over expectation instead of completion percentage over expectation since it takes the wide receiver out of the equation and helps exclude drops? Both are fairly subjective, but you could argue that accuracy rating over expected is a more valuable metric when comparing quarterbacks. I did think about it. I did not want to inject further subjectivity into it, given the fact that PFF grade already heavily weights ball placement. PFF grade already heavily weights ball placement. People have good ball placement. And if the quarterback throws a good ball and the wide receiver drops it, it's rated exactly the same as if a quarterback made a really good throw and the wide receiver caught it. 
because it's about the isolating the play of the quarterback. What I didn't want to do is start to throw conflictual subjectivity in there where I had one metric that was viewing one thing a certain way and then I had a different metric that may be viewing it a different way. So that's the reason why I didn't use accuracy rating over expectation and I instead used CPOE. Two, odd numbers objectively suck, he said. Do you see any value in adding something like success rate or dropback success rate so you have eight total metrics feeding into composite score? I did think about it. I haven't come up with something I really like yet, but I'm working on it. So Stu is a absolutely evolving concept. I've already made some adjustments. I'll probably make some adjustments this offseason as well. But yes, I have thought about using eight instead of seven. Third question. In doing these rankings, have you found any specific metric that is more reliable, consistent, predictive than the others? No, I have not. Because I haven't been doing it long enough to get predictive measurements. So for me, it's about combining the things that the metrics do well and accounting for something in every metric. So when somebody says, well, Bruce, what about this? I have an answer. Well, this metric accounts for that. Well, what about clutch? Well, I have a metric for that. Well, what about drops? I have a metric for that. What about QB rushing? I have a metric for that. I want everything to be accounted for somewhere. So for me... I don't think you're ever going to get one that is more reliable, consistent, or predictive than the other. Despite the fact that people who, from Football Outsiders will tell you DVOA. People from PFF will tell you PFF grade. People from ESPN will probably tell you QBR. It's just the way it is. But I don't think so. I have not found it thus far. 3B. Because Stu may show that some metrics are more valuable or predictive than others, have you given any thought to weighting the metrics differently instead of giving equal one-seventh? I have thought about it, but given the fact that I have not come up with one that I think is more weighted than the others, I have not done it. In addition, I don't like adding my own subjective opinion to it. And weighting would be me injecting my own opinion to it. The only thing that I have injected into Stu is the curation itself. The selection of the metrics that are utilized. That's it. I haven't done anything else. And it's all very public. So... You don't need me to come up with Stu. It's all very transparent. I don't own Stu. There's no copyright on this composite. It's not about me. This is about getting it right. It's about having a well-balanced way of looking at the quarterback position. I don't care if my opinion gets injected into it. One of the reasons why I value metrics so much is because I'm not arrogant enough to assume that my eyes are always going to be right. Well, Bruce... I don't care what that says. My eyes tell me differently. Well, your eyes might be wrong. That's the reason why I do this. Because I'm not arrogant enough to assume that the way I observe the world is always going to be accurate. Because I'm viewing it through my own lens with my own intrinsic biases and I value certain things and I'm wrong because I don't know the play call a lot. I'm wrong. So that's the reason why I value this stuff so much. So I really try to avoid injecting my own thoughts into this, aside from the curation, which is very easily explained when someone asks me, well, what about this? I picked this for this. What about this? Well, I picked this to accommodate for this. So that's the reason why I haven't weighted them. Question four, he says, after you compile your seven metrics, you always issue a number for quarterbacks relative rank for each separate metric. 
I personally disagree with this method. I realize this probably brings balance to outliers and metric ranks. That's exactly right. That's why I do it. But one could argue that using data from seven different metrics already does that for you. In some cases, you may have a cluster of quarterbacks grouped together that causes your relative ranking system to be greatly skewed. For example, in unadjusted EPA per play, there are currently six QBs between 0.123, Derek Carr, and 0.111, Mac Jones. You may rank these quarterbacks anywhere between 14th and 19th before you formulate your composite, but the data shows the variance between these quarterbacks are 1.2 points per 100 plays. This is less than the difference between QB 19 and QB 20. There is also a bigger gap between QB 11 and QB 14 than there is between QB 3 and QB 11. These can lead to fairly significant discrepancies in your total composite score. My point and question for you, is there a way you can create a total composite score using the actual metric value instead of the relative ranking? Yes, I can. No, I don't want to. Then he said, if it's possible, but you intentionally haven't done it, would you mind explaining why you prefer relative ranking? Yes. I prefer relative ranking because everything in the NFL is relative to something else. Whether you are a good running back or not is not based on your yards per carry. It's not. Whether you're a good quarterback is not based on your yards per attempt. You're not. It's how good you are relative to your peers. That's it. Because that's what allows you to compare people across eras. We all know that we live in different eras of football and things change drastically. And if you look at Jim Kelly's numbers and Josh Allen's numbers, they're not even close. Josh Allen's raw passing numbers are way better than Jim Kelly's. Well, of course they are. They were in different eras of football. And this is why I hate it when people do that. Well, first 10 years of Jim Kelly and the first four years of Josh Allen, look at this. Completely different eras of football. How good you are is not about how good you are in a vacuum. It's about how good you are relative to the other people in your league. If you have a really good quarterback and he's 31st in the league, he's not really good because there are 30 other quarterbacks better than him. He might be really good relative to nothing. <laughs> he might be really good in a vacuum, but that's why I use relative rankings. So I hope that helps. Landon, I want to make sure I went through all that. I really love the email because he asked questions about it. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to hold on to that until I get to the QB stew episode. Well, here's the QB stew episode. So I held on to it without further ado. Let's go through the QB stew. I am going to read you the total QB stew quarterbacks from the top to the bottom, starting at the top, going to the bottom in this order, Kyler Murray, Aaron Rodgers, Kirk Cousins, Tom Brady, Dak Prescott, Matthew Stafford, Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, Jimmy Garoppolo, Derek Carr, Joe Burrow, Mac Jones, Teddy Bridgewater, Tua Tungavaloa, Carson Wentz, Russell Wilson, Patrick Mahomes, Taylor Heineke, Matt Ryan, Lamar Jackson, Ryan Tannehill, Jalen Hurts, Baker Mayfield, Daniel Jones, Ben Roethlisberger, Jared Goff, Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, Zach Wilson. So, Josh Allen, seventh in QB stew right now. His metrics look like this. Seventh in QBR, 10th in passer rating, 11th in average net yards per attempt, 5th in EPA per play, 12th in DVOA, 9th in PFF grade, and 12th in CPOE. 
stew of 9.42. Let's put that in perspective. His stew was 9.42. Josh Allen's QB stew last year was 3.57 at the end of the year. Really, 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 really good. In 2019, his QB stew was 27.57. In 2018, his QB stew was 31.14. A reminder, lower number is better. So we're at 31.14, and this year, 9.42. So not quite as good this year relative to last year, but still very, very good. Very good. I think we have sample size, folks. Last year was not a fluke. Josh Allen has had a couple bad games. He's had a couple games that were not up to snuff. The first two games were not up to stuff. The Jaguars game was not up to stuff. The Colts game wasn't amazing. But even with those things, he's still a top seven quarterback in QB stew. It's not a fluke anymore. There's enough sample size that Josh Allen is playing really well. He's playing well enough that we're starting to see victims to the, well, maybe he can break out like Josh Allen mindset. Daniel Jones, Drew Locke, people consistently getting a, well, you never know. Maybe they'll break out like Josh Allen. Probably not, guys. Josh Allen's the improbable. He is Josh Allen the improbable. Probably not going to happen. But, hey. If you want to do that, give your quarterback an unnecessarily large amount of time and have him not break out, that's your prerogative. And if it doesn't work, I'm just going to throw my hands up in the air and say, sorry, dude, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings. Buffalo Rumblings.